Hello and welcome to the Me and My Golf podcast. We're your hosts and PGA coaches, Andy Proudman and Piers Ward. And these podcasts are really about one thing, making you better. Yes, on here we'll be sharing our own experiences and knowledge as players and coaches, as well as bringing to you special guests to help your game. Let's get into today's podcast and help you take charge of your game. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. Hope you are doing well. Now we've got a great guest on the podcast today. We have none other than Colin Swatton. Now Colin is Jason Day's coach and we met Colin a couple of years ago. I think it was at uh, 2016 Open at Troon for the first time and then we spent a little bit of time with Colin in Australia last year at a seminar. It was great to actually listen to some of the stories and the experience he's had. Now, Colin is a, a golf coach, but he also caddied for Jason as well for a good period of time. And in today's podcast, we really dive deep into his coaching career, how he got started, how he met Jason, his role as, I suppose, in Jason's life, not only as a golf coach, but also as a almost a father figure, really, and that role that he played in his life growing up as well. And it's been an amazing career, what, what he's done. And when you actually listen to some of the stuff we talk about today, it's no surprise that him and Jason have had a successful partnership because Colin's approach to coaching is incredible, really. There's no stone left unturned. He's so detailed and and very calculated in how he wants to go about the improvements. And we go through some great stories of what it was like on tour, some of the best and some of the toughest things about being on tour, but also what you guys can learn. How can you actually improve your game? Some of the real things that Colin passes on is, is knowledge and experience that has real benefit to you. So this podcast went on over well over an hour, which was great. We could have gone for longer, but that just shows really the passion and the dedication that Colin brings in everything that he does as well. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. If you do, please tag us in on social, screenshot it and tag us in on me and my golf. And if you are new to the podcast then make sure you head over to itunes and subscribe for one of these every single week to help you gain so please welcome colin swatton to the podcast colin welcome to the podcast how are you i'm doing i'm doing great uh, it's great to be a part of the podcast and uh we've all been on lockdown for long enough so it's great to to see other people from the other side of the world it's, it's great <laughs> well we pre- appreciate you grab you <laughs> yeah six feet <laughs> but yeah no it's great to chat colin now i mean it's 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 good to sort of talk. I was just mentioning sort of before we went live on here, these podcasts are great because we, it sort of allows us to go a little bit deeper into the guests and have some real open conversations. And, and you know, we learn things and the listeners learn a lot as well. So it'd be great to go through a lot of stuff about your career as a as a caddy and a coach and, and sort of what you've done. And I think obviously you're most well-known for the work that you've done with Jason. But I think what's so important is, and what we really love is that we can go a little deeper about and learn more about you as a, as a coach and what you've done and, and what's got you to where you are today. And so it'd be great for the listeners if you could just share that brief story of, of how you got into to what you do and what's brought you to where you are today. Yeah, well, sure. Um, you know, a lot of people obviously, you know, think that, you know, I caddied for Jason Day for 10 years and, and uh, was a part of uh, what he achieved as a, as a player and getting to number one. But I think a lot of people on the PGA Tour even still think I'm just a caddy when, you know, realistically, I became a golf pro when I was 21 um, and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time in, in Asia. Um, at 21, I first went to Singapore and, and I worked at a driving range in Singapore and worked with a company called Henry Griffiths and was a master fitter um, and then uh, went into Malaysia and we opened a golf academy. My partner and I opened a golf academy in Malaysia. 
and we ran that for about five and a half years. Um, it was uh, a very successful golf academy. We did uh, golf instruction through the local newspaper. Uh, we ran golf programs and um, also, T, they, uh, they used to have a PAT test, which was actually uh, making sure that players were qualified enough to actually get onto the golf course, a player assessment test. and uh, like a driving we were, test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, uh, we had to make sure that they were of a level or a standard good enough to get onto the golf course, which was great for us. It meant more lessons, um, but uh, it was good to be a part of sort of introducing golf into Asia, and, and uh, they loved golf so much. That was great. And then after that, I came back to Australia when my dad actually uh, contracted uh, cancer. And I come back to be with him, and uh, unfortunately, he lost his battle uh, not long after I got back. So I sort of took a year's hiatus, and uh, my dad was obviously my best friend, and uh, I sort of didn't cope with that really well. And um, so I took a year off and didn't do anything. And uh, uh, believe it or not, I was in a golf store doing what we all do, picking up golf clubs, scratching the wedges on the carpet, <laughs> doing everything else. And I bumped into a guy. and. He said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a golf instructor and um, you know, basically run golf academies for the last seven or eight years. And uh, he was a boarding master at a school called Corolban International School. And uh, he said, we're looking for a golf pro. Would you be interested in coming in and, and maybe having an interview? So I said, why not? And I went in and I took the interview. And uh, six months later, I was running the academy. And it was uh, a very, very successful golf program. Adam Scott went to the the same academy, Andrew Buckle, Stephen Bowditch, uh, Aaron Pike. You know, I think there's probably about 20 people that actually have gone on to make successful careers on the you know, various tours, European tour, the uh, Australasian tour and the US PGA tour. And that's where I was fortunate enough to have a 12-year-old young Jason Day come into the academy. And, uh, you know, we've worked together ever since. Amazing. It must have been, yeah, I mean... Amazing. You know, I think it's well documented how important that you were, you, I suppose you was in terms of his, not for his golf, but also his life. Because, you know, from what you hear in the, in the stories and the papers and stuff that, you know, he had a little bit of a troubled, troubled, not troubled upbringing, but he had some difficulties and you sort of stepped in and you were much more than a, a, a caddy and a coach to him, really. Yeah, well, you're right. You know, Jason's father, uh, Alvin, lost his fight with cancer the same year that my dad passed and, uh, so we, we had a common thread, um, and um, when he came into the academy, he was, you know, a good player. Um, at that point, I think he was off about five handicaps, so he was definitely a, a good player in his own right, but at the same time, too, we had 45 other kids there that were, you know, of similar standards. So he was sort of just another, another kid in the program, and obviously having Adam Scott graduate and things like that, you know, it was good to encourage the best of the best to come to that, yeah. that facility. So, um, you know, I think with Jason, more than anything, it was his passion and his drive to want to do it for his family. You know, his sisters had both given up um, a lot of opportunities and made a lot of sacrifice for his mom to be able to afford to come to a school like the Corolban International School and be a part of a golf program. And he was really, really driven to to want to do really well and be successful at that um and also he just saw me you know as somebody that you know could not only provide the level of instruction that he needed to be able to at different parts of his life and different parts of his career to, to keep on improving 
but also too we had a good time and um you know we become mates and good friends and you know uh he was the best man at my wedding and i was the best man at his wedding so that obviously goes to say a lot yeah unbelievable unbelievable and what what we want to do with this as well as andy said we want to make sure that we do break it down to the area so we're going to obviously i've got some more questions about jason but also we've got some questions about your coaching and obviously being a caddy um and and for me i you know i see obviously these players andy does as well you see these players and they're they're very um Obviously, they're elite at what they do, but there comes, I'm sure, some baggage with that in, in, in which allows them to get to that point. So obviously, you have these amazing highs of winning tournaments because they're so talented. But because they're so talented, then you may have these sort of adverse um, occasions of, of your of your time and your relationship. So basically, what I'm trying to say is, what's what's can you sum up the the highest point of your relationship and then maybe something that wasn't so good? And, and and just give the listeners a little bit of an idea on that. Yeah, I think I think obviously being a part of somebody's life from age twelve, you know, through until age thirty-two, and along that journey, being able to achieve probably the pinnacle in golf, which is to become the best player in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only a, a number of guys that can actually say that they were that person. I think you know, being in the BMW Championship, winning the BMW Championship the way he did. And at that moment, taking the number one position, that was probably the highest of highs. And understanding that the culmination of every choice and every decision and every ball that you'd hit and every conversation that you'd had, be it good or bad or following success or following failure, had all added up to that moment. And, uh, you know, I think becoming the number one player in the world was certainly one of the highest um, moments definitely in my career as a as an instructor but also as a as a caddy um, the PGA championship obviously I put that right up there as well going head to head against the number one player in the world you know uh, Jordan Spieth at that time and really separating yourself from the field mm-hmm. and it was just a ding-dong two-man race and who wanted it more um, you know winning a major championship is hard enough but to to beat the number one player in the world to do that so they'd be the two highs um i think from a low i think i'd i'd say that being standing next to somebody and watching them play golf and not have the ability to be able to make the ball do what it is supposed to do or make the putts when you're supposed to make the putts, or get up and down when you're supposed to get up and down, and really just hit shots of just poor quality, but for no other reason than you're so distracted with what's going on off the golf course, Mm -hmm. is probably the hardest thing to be a part of, because you're you're trying to convince them to keep going, but at the same time, you're sympathetic with them and saying, let's just walk off. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and 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 that happened, you know, obviously at the match play championship when it finally became a, a catalyst for Jason was, you know, his mum was diagnosed with cancer. He'd lost his father to stomach cancer, you know, so him and I had spoken about it and we were out on the golf course and it had been going on for a while. And Jason had obviously had a bad season in in the regards of what a bad season is on the PGA Tour and he he had hit it his manager had hit it, and we and i had hit it 
And we just didn't want people to think it was an excuse or what have you. And I remember it was, uh, gosh, it was the, uh, what was it? The seventh hole, seventh or eighth hole par five. And, you know, he had the easiest chip, you know, I could have got it up and down, you know, and, <laughs> and, um, he just, you know, he chipped it to 10, 12 feet and, you know, he missed the part and lost the hole. And, and, uh, and I just said to him, I said, sometimes there's things in life that are bigger than the sport itself and the moment. And I said, you need to take this moment to be with your mom. And, uh, you know, that's when he walked off the golf course and, you know, the media, um, obviously, you know, wanted to know what was going on. And Jason came out with that very emotional yeah, interview where, told mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, his mum was dying. And, uh, you know, I'd say that was probably the lowest of low is to, it's like I say, to be standing there with somebody and, and see them then just not achieve what they're supposed to achieve, but for no other reason than, you know, they're so distracted with what's going on. And I think the, I think the fans and I think that sometimes the sponsors, um, I think they all just expect us to be robots. And, yeah. you know, and I hear it more than anybody. It's like, oh, Jordan Spieth, he's in a slump, you know, such and such. He's in a slump. Well, maybe he's got some stuff going on in his life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, of course. Yeah. Got that going on in our life. But unfortunately, you get to live in their life. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and that's where they just expect them to be perfect and, you know, have nothing affect their life or their performance. So, yeah, that's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, I love it. I love but, it. I uh, think that's good. It's really, it, it's a really good thing to to talk about there. I mean, yeah, we could talk about that for a long time, but it it's, it's, it it just shows you how important that is. That you know, but yeah, that makes that makes total sense. I think it must be uh, just quickly. It must be extra special though, Colin, to be able to. There's not many people who can um, be a part of, you know somebody's life from 12 to then all the way to world number one you know i mean a lot of coaches will come in at later dates at at people's career and you know maybe when they're 25 and help them achieve success but to be a part of the whole experience from a young kid to uh, growing up and you've seen him develop as a person as well it's it's very different isn't it as well so that must have been extra special to finally go well i've seen this lad grow up i've seen what he's been through and we've sort of got to this point together and i've helped be a part of that so that that's a feeling that not many people get to experience i suppose yeah it's 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 definitely it's it's awesome to be part of somebody's life you know i'll never be a parent at least from my wife at least my wife and i obviously can't have children we met late in life but it it's it's good to have been a part of somebody's life and you guys will get to do it but to be able to to raise a you know a son or a daughter and be a part of their life and create and be become a, an influence in their life and help in some way, shape or sh- uh, form um, allow your um, feelings, your emotions, um, your character, uh, your personality then be reflected in somebody else. And, you know, one of the things I'm proudest of is that he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. You've been yeah. around him, you know, Absolutely. He's, gen- he's genuine. One of the and, best. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not a it's not a fake niceness. It's it's a, a sincerity that's there. And and you know, a lot of people say that um, you've been I've been responsible for a little bit of that, which is great. So that's awesome to be a part of that. But also too, as a coach, I always thought I was a decent coach, but at different points throughout that entire journey, not just giving him the information, but also too, as to then trying to find ways to continually challenge him mm-hmm. and and there's not many people that can say they're the best 
player in the world, you know, and that's that great story about Lee Westwood, you know, and an airline hostess. But it's it's saying that you've coached the best player in the world is in itself something that not a lot of coaches can say that they've done. But it's interesting is as the player gets better, you have to challenge yourself as an instructor and as a coach to be able to say, okay, well, how am I doing it right? Am I giving him the correct instruction? Am I giving him the right feedback from a, a data collection standpoint or, or whatever it is, is to continually get them to grow. And I know when, when he was getting better and he was you know, getting up into the top 10 in the world, I was like, okay, well, I've got to go and speak to all of the coaches that have coached the number one player in the world and ask them questions about what they did with their student, if their student did this or their player did that. And, um, you know, some were helpful and some were very um, <laughs> guarded in their information, which is fine. <laughs> of course. Which is fine. And how, how, would you, how would you go about challenging Jason to learn a new skill, for instance? I know we had a conversation about this a little bit in Australia, but I think it'd be great for the viewers to, they might give a different answer to what you gave me, but you know, how, did you challenge, <laughs> how did you challenge Jason to, to improve his skill level and, and develop new skills? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I've always been a pretty black and white instructor and and I've always been and I continue to do is I continue to tell the student that the information that I give them is factual it's not opinion based you know and and as instructors we shouldn't just give us give our students or our clients an opinion on on what we think or our belief on what we think we should know what we think and that's where I always went with Jason with with the data to support why I was doing it, whether it's a swing change, whether it's a, a strategy on par fours or par fives or par threes, or whether it's uh, practice-based uh, information on where he should spend his time, why he should spend his time, whether it was a drill that I wanted him to do or something like that, I would always then take the information and say, this is why we need to do it. And then this is how it's going to help you improve in the future. And then continually work it and weave it into our goal which was always to be the best player in the world. So as long as you had the information and the data to be able to make it factually based information and not just opinion based, that's when he would be able to then say, okay, fine, I'll accept it and, and I'll implement it. And, and he would take ownership of that. Um, so that was always one way that I, I went about it. Um, you know, and obviously the story I told you about Hank Haney, um, you know, making a suggestion to Tiger Woods and then allowing Tiger to, to then come back to him and say, hey, I think we should work on this <laughs> and supporting it sometimes is the way it needs to be handled. Oh, great uh, idea, but, Tiger. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that I think part of any instruction, and you, you guys teach enough, you know, good players to know this, is that a player will buy into it more if they believe in it more. And it's your job to be able to uh, to get them to buy in and believe it. Because if they do, then they'll take it with both hands and then they'll work hard enough to be able to achieve what they want to achieve. But if it's not the buy-in, then they go into it half-assed. Yeah, and that's yeah. when they, obviously they, they'll do it for a little period of time and then they won't do it. And then they'll move on to the next thing. And that's what I see a lot of, not only on the tour, but in golf in general. Hey, I tried that for a couple of weeks. It didn't work. You know, and it's like a couple of weeks ain't going to make a change, you know, and, <laughs> and, and that's where, 
you know, that buy-in um, really occurs. And that's what happened with Hank was that he would be able to, to give a suggestion to Tiger, you know, and, and then he would come back. And when it's, once it was his idea, you know, as you know, a lot of these players are never wrong. So once they <laughs> believe in their heart of hearts, that's what they need to do then that's when they have that buy-in and they're fully committed to it. And then as an instructor, then you've got to support that and embrace it. And obviously it was your idea in the first place. So there's less egos with golf coaches, isn't there? <laughs> well, I, think, I think good golf coaches know that it's not ego based or ego driven. And sometimes, you know, the path of least resistance is, is off, often the best. And, you know, it's, it's, there's never a challenge or a roadblock in life. You'll always be able to get around it in order to achieve your goal, provided that you're focused on the outcome. And yeah. as long as you're committed to it, you'll find a way around around the outside, around the boulder, the roadblock, and and continually, you know, get your play to improve. Of course, of course. And and for Jason, what was the what's the hardest thing for Jason to do when he plays golf? Obviously, he's, he's obviously exceptionally talented. But what would, what's the hardest thing that he finds to do, and how do you go around helping him in that? I think at different points in his career, it was different things. Um, I think, I think now, um, I think the most difficult thing for Jason is to find that intrinsic motivation in order to, to constantly be driven. You know, one of the the things when, when Jason was, you know, trying to get and become the number one player in the world, I said, I, I said to him, I said, you've got to spend more time around Tiger and find out what his motivation is, what, why is he so driven? You know, there's two, there's really two guys in the world that have been dominant number ones. And that's obviously Tiger Woods at, a, I think, 660 something. And then, you know, uh, Greg Norman at about 330 something. So those two people have dominated that number one position for so long. But when you're caught on that merry-go-round, it, it becomes sometimes almost Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. And if you're not driven enough and you're not committed enough and you're not, you know, goal oriented enough, it's easy just to become ho-hum about the way you go about things. So I think, I think with, with Jason and with a lot of players, they, they become less driven and they become more about, you know, maintaining. I just yeah. need to be mm-hmm. on the tour. I just need to satisfy. I just need to win a certain amount of times a year. I just need to do this, that, and the other. And we see it with all players. You know, that's where you see the the highs and the lows. You know, one year Justin Thomas will be crushing it, then it'll be John Rahm, then it'll be Jordan Spieth, then it'll be Jason Day, then it'll be Dustin Johnson. You know, they don't continually dominate. And they mm-hmm. don't continually dominate because it's like it's easy after you've won three or four or five times in the season to say, I deserve a break. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, a few days off. and and that's the thing, and and it's easy to do that. I'm not saying that you know, Jason or other players do that, but it would be easy subconsciously to not have as much commitment um, to what you want to do, and uh, and it's never a bad thing. At different points in in you know our lives, there's times that you know it's like, gosh, I just want to have the day off, or I just you know that was a half-assed lesson or whatever it was, you know, it's hard to, to remain focused all the time. And especially when you're in the limelight. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. It's, it's impossible to function at that high level for every day of the year for 10 years in a row. And even someone like Tiger, we know 
you know, has been the most dominant force we've probably ever seen, he hasn't been able to do it himself. So if he can't do it, then obviously it's going to be very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you know, and, he's, he's just done it better than anybody else. You know, and that's that's why he's, you know, he's the person that he is. Absolutely, absolutely. And as far as the best thing that Jason, what I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this would probably know what the best thing that Jason um, his best attribute is. What is it for you? His best attribute, and how do you maintain it? Oh well, obviously that'd be his putting. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's only one year he's been outside the top ten in PGA Tour history for putting, um, both in strokes gained. Um, but it, it, you know, again, I'm I'm a firm believer in in a plan and working to a plan. So. Um, obviously, he's he was always a, a good putter, um, be it sometimes a little more streaky than others when he was younger. Um, obviously, because you know, and if you look at any of Scott's work, you know, with his uh, college players, he always you know talks about holding speed and capture rate and and things like that. But he was a very aggressive putter, so he always got the ball to the hole or past the hole. Sometimes it was too far past the hole, so. You can do that when you're 15, 16, you know, 17, you're playing for toasters or microwave ovens or whatever. But <laughs> suddenly, as you get older and older, those three, four, and five footers coming back get a little bit more and more difficult to make. So um, so we said about, obviously, just trying to work on speed control and make that paramount. He's always been a great green reader. Um, but also, too, is to come up with a plan to be able to say, what are the things that – what are the attributes to what you do and then what are the things that you struggle to keep on top of and then build that into a plan that he can do on a daily basis in order to become uh, to maintain what he's currently doing, but also to become a better putter and then to give the time that's necessary to be able to do that. Like everybody knows that putting's 42 percent of the game. That's great. But is a player going to be prepared to spend 42 percent of their time working on putting? No, that's why people are you know not necessarily great putters. But it's also too saying okay, well, it might be 42% of the game, but then what areas of putting? You know, it's 42% of the game because we have a lot of three-footers or tap-ins or whatever. They all count to that percentage, but we're not going to waste our time working on two- and three-footers. So, you know, it's about spending the time in the right areas. So, you know, when Jason comes out and, you know, says things like, I putt for two and a half hours a day, he does putt for two and a half hours a day. But it's very, very productive putting. We do our drills and our mechanical work, and then everything is random variable from there. you know. And everything is always written down. So we know where he's missing. Is he missing high side, low side? Is it short? Is it long? You know. So then it's easier to, to go in and say, okay, we see a pattern forming. Okay, now we need to go back and do a little bit more string line, start line, you know, whatever it be, in order to continually keep him there. So I would say his strength is his putting. Obviously, he's a great chipper of the golf ball. I've seen some amazing up and downs in the the ten plus years I was on the bag for him. Um, you know, he's not the greatest iron player in the world, nor is he a great wedge player. Um, you know, and he drives it crooked. But you know, you can drive it crooked and be long, but you can't drive it crooked and be short. And you know, the stuff with Brody and obviously now with Scott, um, you know, they're making people a lot more aware of that. But it's the ability to be able to take advantage of those um, moments in time around the green and uh, and on the green that allow you to to definitely be dominant. Yeah, he's very good at that. I think what yeah. I lo- what what I love as well, Carl, is that the and you know this is you as a coach really is that and you can see your approach, how 
everything's everything's measured isn't it nothing like as you mentioned with the the data and the and the facts about things you're not going to go based on oh i feel that i'm missing things right or i feel that i'm doing this it's like well i want to record everything so i know the details and we know exactly what to change because yep. then you've got the information if you measure it you can actually improve it because you can then look at the areas what you're doing well and the areas you're doing wrong and so i mean in terms of that just Stats is obviously going to be a key part for you as well. I'm sure that you, I think I remember that when we saw you in, in Australia, you were talking how much that you would, I think you were showing us some stats actually and how that how that's a really important role that you wouldn't really change anything. And, and with your players that you coach, is that something that you really go into? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, obviously at the start of the, or the end of the uh, a year, we sit down and we do a, an end of year uh, meeting and a debrief on how that year went. And then we also then put our plan together for what we're going to do in the off-season leading into the following season. And it's all then goal-driven and, and based on factual information, yeah. which events you should play, which events you shouldn't play, how your past performance, like, you know, it's funny, Mark and I have known each other for you know, nine, ten years. And, uh, you know, Mark, when he first came out on the tour, would ask me certain questions and probe for, for answers. And he says, I don't know how you do it, but you seem to come up with the right answers. You know, I'd tell him which holes played harder, which holes didn't play harder, what Jason would do before he did it. You know, I'd say, this will be in the right rough. This will be here. This will be here. And he'd always like say, how did you know that? And I said, because I would keep in that information. And the first time Mark saw it, he was like, wow, I can't believe you do that. And I said, yeah. And he said, you're so archaic. You do everything in spreadsheets on Excel. <laughs> and I still do it that way. Um, but it's, it, it, it's easy to tell somebody what they need to do when really it's like I said earlier, it's factually based. Yeah. So the, the reason people don't do it is it's, it's time consuming and they can't see the value in it. Yeah. That's the only people, that's the only reason people don't keep statistics. And it's but there it, are massive. Go on, sorry. Yeah. Go on, no, sorry, no, sorry. Go on. Yeah. I say there's, there's massive examples now of players who've just looked at their stats and have, suddenly big like dj i think is one of the biggest examples of someone who suddenly started looking at his stats knew then where to be working on his game and suddenly becomes world number one absolutely you know like you know for dustin to be able to say i drive at 340 350 and i'm in the middle eight times out of ten like why aren't i the most dominant player in the history of the game well it's easy it's like don't hit it close enough. And then when you get get it on the green, you're at like 50-50 at trying to make the putt. So it was a combination of being being able to stand there and then say, okay, my, work on my distance control. And he did that. Obviously, it was well publicized that, you know, that was a conversation between him and his coach at that time, which was Butch Harmon to say, dude, if you just take your track man out every day when you're warming up, you'll know how far you hit everything to the number. And then obviously, if you can work on your putting as well and improve that a little bit, you know, you'll be the most dominant player. And he, that was all evident of what happened that year. So it again, happened, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. Like I can remember I was at a, um, I was at a golf course. I won't say who the player was. And it was, uh, it was actually at the Byron Nelson on the 11th hole. It's a short drivable par four. And that player had always laid up. And I said, Stats and numbers say this is what you've got to hit it. You've got to hit this drive, da 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 da. And we go through it all. And I have every single shot that he's hit on that hole. And uh, and anyway, it didn't matter what information I had. This player literally would say it's all about feel and how I'm feeling at the moment. And I was like, 
it can't be. <laughs> and now he couldn't understand that. I said, so what you're telling me is that in any given moment during that round, you're going to be changing your game plan. You're going to be changing your, your selection off the tee. You're going to be changing all of these variables in the heat of the battle as you've just walked off that green, either three-putting it, making birdie, making bogey, whatever. You're going to continually do that. He said, yeah, that's what golf is. It's all feel. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's not all feel. There's an aspect of golf, which is feel, but you know, the definition of insanity is simple. You keep making the same mistake over and over again and expect a different thing, a different outcome. And, uh, anyway, long story short, he played the hole in par and, you know, par doesn't cut it on that hole and you're actually losing shots to the field by playing that hole in par. And here's what I, the message I was trying to say was, you're too conservative on a hole where everyone's aggressive. Mm -hmm. And if you played to your strength and you hit your three wood, which was your most accurate club in the bag, you could get it into a position where you could be more aggressive. Um, so it's interesting, but again, he just didn't have the buy-in and because yeah. he didn't buy in, he continually wanted to, to play by feel and play by emotion. And, and, uh, you know, he still is an emotional player. So, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, but if you can say, you know, here's the, here's what it is. And this is the way I suggest you play a hole or, you know, why you need to play it that way. And they buy in, then that's when they'll accept it. And that's what obviously was evident with DJ. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I know Andy's got some questions on coaching you as a coach, but I'm just going to go one more thing. Cause obviously with Jason, as you say, 10 years on the bag, what, what was the, obviously you're still coaching him now. We had a discussion just before how you did a zoom call with him and, you know, going through his Trackman numbers and he's got a, an amazing setup at home. Andy, I'll tell you about that later. I think we need to get the invite. Um, what, what yeah, was, what special. was the catalyst? Is it pretty, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd love to see it. What what was the catalyst between uh, behind you not working with Jason as far as a caddy was concerned? So coming well, think, off the bag, what was the reason behind that? I think I think above all, um, we had made uh, a decision. You know, there was two there was two things that we discussed when when we when I first took that role on, um, and I used to caddy for him even as an amateur. But we always agreed to say if it ever gets to a point where it feels weird or it, it feels like it's just not there that we'd be honest enough to talk about that. And, um, and Jason had brought it up at different points along the way to see whether I'd be interested in co-share, bag share, whether I'd just work the majors, whether I, whether I wouldn't work the majors. And it always got to a point where, it, well, it did get to a point where we both were like, this just feels like, you know, a job you know, rather than it feels like a journey. And, uh, you know, that's when we spoke about it. And, you know, uh, I agreed that, you know, I was, you know, almost 50 at that point. And I said, I don't particularly want to, you know, do it for the rest of my life. Um, you know, obviously, I met my, my wife, and I want to spend time with her and my family back home in Australia. And obviously, doing, you know, 25, 26 weeks on the road with Jason and then working with the other clients that I'm working with as well and traveling, it was just a lot of travel. So, you know, collectively we made the decision that, you know, uh, he should, you know, look for another caddy and, um, you know, we went down that path and, uh, I think he wanted to try too and have a little bit more fun on the golf course, you know, um, like I'm a fun guy, I can have a beer and a good time, but at the, mm -hmm. the same time too, you know, we're there to do a job and win tournaments. So I think, you know, 
at that point in his life, it was like, I've become the best player in the world. I'm right up here. And I just want to have a little more fun on the golf course and it be a little bit more, um, not as serious, you know, if I can sort of say that word. And, um, you know, so he did, he hired, you know, two of his uh, mates, um, Luke Reardon and, uh, Ricker Batabasaga. Don't ask me to spell that, but, but, um, Rick is a, Rick is a great guy. He played uh, on the European tour for a little while. Um, got a lot of game. It's at a mile. Uh, can go anywhere, but um, it it's it, it definitely goes a long way. Um, and then Luke was uh, also a student of mine at uh, at Carolban and also at Hills Golf Academy. Uh, good player, um, you know, was Jason's roommate at uh, at the academy. So they had a lot of uh, good energy and good synergy there. So uh, I was like, you know, he said, "What do you think?" I said, "I think it's a great idea. Get them both on the bag and have a good time and see if it uh, feels a little bit more." Uh, relaxed and a little bit more, um, a, you know, easy and not as much in your face. And, uh, you know, so we set about doing that. So, you know, he's been through a few caddies in the last two years. Um, even the great Steve Williams made a cameo, uh, which was fun. Um, so, you know, he's settled on one caddy now. Um, he's going to go with Luke. So um, it was Luke's first season. Uh, it's obviously uh, only a few events into it, but um, hopefully they'll get a, a chance to get back on the course soon. And and I know Chase is eager to get out there and play well. I bet, yeah, I bet they all are now, aren't they? They're all dying to compete again. I think, aren't they? They miss that yeah. competition. They miss that. They miss that competitiveness every week. I know that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they, you know, it's like you've been around pros long enough. Like they're compet- It doesn't matter if they're playing pool whether they're playing golf, whether they're betting on two flies crawling up a wall, like they are the most competitive natured people um, that I've ever come across. And obviously that's one reason that they're so driven and so successful at what they do. Yeah, definitely. So what does a, what does a week look like for you now, Carl? How, I mean, it's obviously a lot different now compared to what it was on the bag. What does it look like for you now? Um, yeah, so for me, um, I have my tour clients that I take care of. Um, I've got... Uh, my corporate clients that I take care of. And then I also have my uh, TPS series where I actually work with other uh, professionals at their course. So let's just say you're a golf pro at your home course. Um, I would come in and I would host a clinic with you. Um, So we would co-lead a clinic, which um, has been really good because obviously it gives me some, a way of getting out and, um, and helping players in a corporate environment and in a club environment but also, too, is I'm not coming into somebody's club or territory and and using their membership as leverage. Yeah. So it allows me to go in and say, look, I, I'll host the clinic with you. You'll lead the clinic, but I'll be there to support and, and do what, uh, what you want me to do with your clients and your membership. So that way it works really good. So that gives me opportunity to do that. Um, I'm looking actually at getting into uh, doing some golf tours. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do some golf tours to uh, the UK, also back home to Oz, and I'll do a few locally, internally here in the US. And I've got somebody that um, I might be partnering there with, which will be great. Um, so for me, it's more about splitting my time amongst several different opportunities um, and then obviously trying to, to, to make sure that I allocate the right amount of time to all of them in order to to do what I want to do. It's interesting. Um, I'm even thinking of uh, getting in and doing some uh, house renovation stuff as well, which has always been a passion of mine. 
but something that you can't do when you're on the road 35 <laughs> weeks a year. So I, I just, I made the, after, uh, after I finished up with Jason, um, I said to my wife, I said, I really only want to do things that I'm passionate about. You know, I've, I've done this now for, you know, almost 35 years. And um, I get to a point where I need to feel challenged and I need to feel passionate about what I do. I don't, I never want to go into a lesson and I can honestly say I probably haven't done it is I never want to go into a lesson going through the motions, Mm -hmm. you know, and for me and the way I work, you know, being more factually based, it takes me a long time to get to the answer. So therefore I'm fully invested. So when people say, you know, when two players say, Hey, can I work with you or, or what have you, unless I see a buy-in, then I, I, Unfortunately, I, I tell them I'm not interested in working with them because I'm buying in, yeah. and and it takes me a long time to do the statistical analysis. It takes me a long time to to work out uh, plans. It lo- it takes me a long time to look at tour schedules to see how they have performed at certain golf courses over the year, because I know that making you know some small improvements in certain areas will get a maximum benefit. It's not about finding, you know, improving P2, P3 or, you know, it's some of it might be, but it's more about the coaching aspect on how to get the maximum out of out of a client. So that's where that becomes, you know, challenging and it requires a long time. So that's why I'm, you know, a little more selective in in what I'm doing and how I go about it. But I know that um, I've done it with Jason and it's been successful so if i know if i apply it to another athlete that it's going to be successful for them as well hi guys andy here just wanted to interrupt you because we are so excited about a new project that we have just launched and it is called complete putting now this is our most requested coaching plan everybody wanted a putting coaching plan so we created it just for you guys and it's a four-week plan that covers everything in it from how to read the greens how to create a consistent putting stroke to start the golf ball online how to really dial in your pace control as well as really finding the right equipment and we're so excited about this this is the best plan in our minds than what we've created and it's going to be launching at the end of june over at meandmygolf.com so just wanted to give you guys a heads up and make sure you check it out then Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, and you're giving a you're giving a proper full service, aren't you? You know, it's more than just a swing coach. You're really looking at the whole game, and you know, you are basing it on facts, and uh, and it's all about the results. At the end of the day, isn't it? Your job is to make help make them better in whatever that may be, whether it's looking at courses and performance on courses, strategy, or whatever it might be. It's a it's a it's a big role, isn't it? Now, yeah, and that's you know. I was talking to you guys back in Australia about it. I've got more into the mental side of the game. I'm doing, um, I finished uh, already uh, one course with a, another provider. I'm doing another one at, at the moment currently with um, some really cutting edge uh, um, equipment that allows me to see what the players are actually thinking. And um, so that's always been a passion of mine, but it's also too is that we these guys play this tournament and and they play this this game at the highest possible level and the the fitness guy the coach the instructor whoever you want to call it you know that that person everything that he does in the gym is measurable so you can measure 
you know, are they getting stronger? Are they getting more bone vile? Are they becoming more flexible? You know, you can measure, you know, hydration, diet intake, caloric intake. You can measure everything from a, from a physical standpoint. You can measure everything from a statistical standpoint. You can measure everything on track man, body track, uh, swing cat, uh, AAM. You can do it all. Um, but the one area that has always bugged me and griped me is the mental side of it. You know, is there a way of actually quantifiably looking at somebody and say, I came in, assessed them, gave them skills and drills to do to improve something, and then they improved and we remeasured and quantified and I saw an improvement in performance. And I've worked with a number of, you know, sports psychologists, performance coaches, what have you, whatever you want to call them. And I don't see that. So mm -hmm. for me, um, and that's also why I'm, I'm getting into that area a little bit more, is that there is equipment out there where you can see improvement in performance and it is measurable. So therefore, again, it just comes back to the way I'm wired and driven is if I go and work with someone from a mental standpoint, I want to be able to say, here's your profile. This is how we scored you in these areas. These are the exercises and drills that we got you started on doing. And then we remeasured performance and this is where we saw it. I don't want to be that guy that walks down and taps you on the back as you walk off 18 and go, wow, you know, you look great out there today. You had your shoulders back, your chest was out, your eyes were above the horizon. You had a great gait, <laughs> you know, wow, you look good. But hey, I saw that bogey on number 12 and, you know, suddenly the head went down, the shoulders became like those days are gone. You know, now it's about measurement and performance and, and especially at that level, you're dealing with the, the highest of high, the, the best of the best. And I think you need to be accountable for, for, you know, whether or not the information that you're actually giving is actually improving them. And uh, some of the work I'm doing with some of the leaders in that in that area, I think, you know, now you can actually start to quantify and, and, and see real performance with numbers as opposed to uh, just, you know, great. You played well. You obviously thought well. You know, you played bad. You, you well, didn't this is, think. This is why the, we always talk about it with the, with the, I suppose, with the mind stuff is that the buy-in isn't there from most people because – they can't, there's no, it's, it's not tangible. It's not, it's not measured. Whereas, you know, you can see the, the golf swing and you can measure the golf swing and track man. Whereas, you know, people don't buy in as much to the mind because it's all, well, you know, is it working? Who, do, who knows? It's just how you feel. And, 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 and it's, it's not based on any, any numbers. Is it? That's the thing. Yeah. And that's the thing is it comes back to what, you know, we spoke about earlier about the buy-in, like you mentioned. And, and that's why so many people get scared of statistics and can't, really see and justify why that is why it is you know and guys like david uh, or Reg, you know that go out there and and actually quantifiably take information and then apply it to a training session or a skill development is popular guys like the 15th club scott Fawcett and his work um you know um so it's the same with the mental side if it's just happy go lucky you know you know, watch a film and you'll become inspired or do this and you'll become this or whatever. It's just too fluffy. And, and they wouldn't accept it from a, an instructor and they wouldn't in, accept it from, you know, a, a gym instructor or, a, you know, someone in that field because it's too quantifiable. It's like, 
dude, you told me to do these exercises and I'd get increased range of motion. My, tip, my internal, you know, hip rotation is still at 35 degrees and I want it at 40, you yeah. know? So if, if it's quantifiable and you can, you know, without a doubt say, this is where you were on a confidence level on a scale of one to 10. And we did this and now you're at here and we've seen improved performance from that. Then that's where it's going to be the game changer. And you can apply that and you can easily work that into a formula or an algorithm to then apply it and say, well, if we can improve here in these areas, that this is what you can actually do and, and start to make on the PGA Tour, you know, one shot's a lot of money. Yeah. Exactly. Is, what you're talking about now is it's just the evolution of golf coaching, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it 30 years ago or however long when video camera first came out and then obviously people started using 3D and as you say, the the fitness uh, stuff has come into it. This is kind of the most, this is the next logical step that we should be going along. Oh, definitely the money because ball it's the hardest, theory. It's the hardest one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the yeah. thing. The whole money ball theory um, applied to golf, you know, has changed golf and the work that Brody's done, you know, in the last sort of 10 years with way that, um, the information has been used and, you know, and finally having a, a quantifiable way of really testing or, or really getting a number as to, you know, is, you know, is their scrambling stat a true statistic of whether they're either putting well or chipping well and, and going to it from a strokes game point of view has really been helpful. So, um, you know, it's, Again, I'm passionate about it. I'm interested in it. My, my sister's a clinical psychologist, and we've shared many a bottle of wine out in the back porch <laughs> talking about why can't, why can't we apply the simple you know, uh, thought processes that people, that clinical psychologists do in golf. So, you know, uh, maybe, if you video maybe, those, I hope you video those conversations. Uh, I tell you what, <laughs> there might be some gold you've lost. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Like those moments, some of those light bulb moments you have out in the back porch, and you think, well, why can't you do that? Yeah, and it's just it's just a matter of finding somebody that's actually prepared to do it. So, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. I think Focus Band's been about the closest that's been able to do what they've been able to do, and and uh, you know, show people how that improves performance. So, so just bringing this back to sort of the average um, amateur, then, Carl, the, the listener to this uh, this podcast, what do you see is the main factor that stops amateurs getting better? What would you say are the main factors? What would you say they are? You know, uh, I did a I did a seminar on this not long ago, and um, in my opinion, I believe it's the it's the perceived value of a lesson. And I think if if people can go into a store and pay, you know, here let's just say four hundred and fifty dollars for a new driver, they the perception is due to marketing and the and the way that these companies go about trying to 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 get people to buy their equipment is that they'd rather spend four hundred and fifty dollars for the extra five yards that Jason Day got or Dustin Johnson or Rory McIlroy, and it, they don't see the perceived value of spending an equivalent amount of money with a qualified PGA instructor, you know, and, and I think, I think that's part of it is that they, people find it difficult to shell out $200 or 250 or whatever the price is for a lesson. Cause they go, well, I'm just with that guy for an hour, you know, and I had one lesson and I didn't really improve. So their, their perception is I'd rather spend, 450 and go and buy a new club that that could do it and 
realistically, if it doesn't, they just go and buy another one. So they're more interested in buying that game as opposed to doing what's necessary in a teaching or coaching environment to actually get improvement. I know the membership here when, you know, I play golf every, you know, every other day with the members here and they'll say, you know, what have I got to do to improve? And I say, okay, great. You know, here, here's a practice plan. This is how you need to work on your green reading. This is what you need to do for speed control. This is how you aim a putter face. This is, you know, they're not interested in that. They just want the, you know, the quick fix. And, and it's, and as, and as I said in the seminar, it's about educating people. It's about educating the amateur as to how do we get long lasting improvement? Because I know if I said to somebody, you're a 17 today and I guarantee I can have you off less than 10 by the end of the year or every single lesson that you've paid me for is free, I would be working seven days a week, yeah. 12 hours They'd a day. Be yeah. They'd be in because they've got the guarantee that it's going to work for them. However, I've got to get the buy-in from them to be able to say, you are going to spend X amount of time at the driving range working on X amount of things and unfortunately, it's not hitting the big dog all the time. You know, it's going to be the boring stuff, the chipping, the putting, the pitching, the wedge game, you know, and that's even before we get onto strategy on how to play the game itself. So um, I, think, I think that's the hardest thing. You know, there's one company here that does it better than anybody, and that's Golf Tech. Yeah. And, uh, and Golf Tech, I, I can't remember the actual number, but Golf Tech actually put out a figure on how much they made in golf lessons last year it was outstanding. How it was, I could not believe the number itself. It was, it was bigger than I thought it would be. Wow. And as I said to the guys, they were all PGA professionals in the room. And I said, how many of you advertise your lessons and what you can do to get somebody to improve? And they're like, well, we don't. And I said, well, that's the thing is that they are the only one that I've seen advertise golf lessons and they're the only one that has a huge market share in what they're doing. And it's the, it's the same thing. You've just got to, you've just got to be able to convince the person standing in front of you that you are worth the 200, but then more importantly, come up with a plan on how you're going to get them to the handicap level that they are. And not many people give a roadmap to success. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we need to be need to spend telemates. Maybe we need to be more expensive than TaylorMade. Maybe we need to be five hundred dollars for a lesson, and then and the perceived value switches there. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, it's 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 crazy to think that, but it's true. It's like you know, I don't know what you guys charge for a lesson, but our local pro here charges a buck fifty for a lesson, which I think is probably underpriced, you know, and and the membership cry out that it's too much, yeah, you know, and I'm like, you're with somebody for an you know, an hour of their time, they're providing you with every piece of valuable information. You're using technology that is very expensive and, you know, they're still interested in the, you know, but how do I fix my slice? And I've got 20 minutes Yeah. You know, before I tee off. They're just interested in that. And that's the, that's why I come back to it. It's the education of PGA members like myself and yourselves to be able to say, how do we collectively as PGA members educate the public into understanding that to get long-lasting improvements, we need to come up with a plan and formalize a plan on how to get you to improve, become a coach more than an instructor, and then be able to say, okay, there's your plan. Can I just get some buy-in to see if this is going to work or, or be, and be successful? And as long as they do, you'll always get success. 
because we're big professionals we're very good at what we do (laughs) absolutely absolutely and i think it's interesting well i'll tell you what anyone who's listening to this who go and has a golf lesson with someone now you go and tell them that cole swatton sent you (laughs) (laughs) and even if they're coming to sign up for an annual membership at me and my golf.com as well cole swatton sent you we'll get we'll get the uh, commission sent out to you there you go So let's get into the caddying a little bit here because we got we still got we could be talking for hours on this and this is great. I mean, I'm yep. really enjoying this conversation. But as as a caddy, what was the hardest thing? What was the hardest thing? Um, I, I think I, I never looked at it as what was the hardest thing about caddying. I looked I always looked at it as to what the challenge was. You know, what can I do as a caddy to be able to support my player? in order for them to achieve the success that they wanted to achieve. So it's what could I do to help them? Um, I never found, like, you know, walking around in 110-degree heat or 113-degree heat at elevation is hard work. It's physically hard work. But I never looked at the job as being difficult itself. It was it was more about the, the planning and the preparation, making sure I got in there early, making sure that I – I checked ups and downs, check sprinkler heads, make sure of lines, make sure of, you know, blind tee shots and defining edges of the fairway to allow a player to feel comfortable to hit a driver or to lay up or what have you. And coming up and formalizing game plans on on the strategy of how that person should play the hole based on how they played the hole in the past and their performance on, on that particular hole and at that particular event. So for me, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday was the fun. It was doing the homework, so to, to speak. So when I'd stand up there on Thursday or Friday or, or Sunday at four o'clock in the afternoon coming down the back nine, I felt prepared and I felt comfortable that no matter what was thrown at us, we already had that scenario played out and how we were going to deal with something. And I think if you can do that as a caddy, your player senses that, you know, and that player can sense that you're prepared. You're very confident in your delivery. You're not standing there going, uh, 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 I think it's a seven iron, you know, or, 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 or make sure you get it over the water, you know, <laughs> you know, those sorts of things you would be, you'd be very confident. Say wins at 10 o'clock, it's five, it's hurt. You know, on that shape of shot that you're going to hit, you know, we need to pitch this ball 167 or whatever it be. And they could feed feed off that and feel that, and uh, you know that way it allows them to perform at the highest level. You know they don't want to be there second guessing. You know what? And this is and I I've seen this. And I'm trying to think where I know it's I know it's from one of Jason's um, course planners. I know whether it was you that showed it me or whether it was Jason who showed it us. But it was how you would you had a game you had your game plan, but you also had your game plan based on the weather forecast. So you yep. had your weather forecast for Thursday, and well, it could be this. So these are the differences that it could make. Just just elaborate a little bit on that because that, that's amazing. Yeah. So you know, the, the PGA Tour, it, we're very fortunate as caddies, and they're fortunate as players that they never really vary too much. You know, mm-hmm. a pin placement in 2010 is seven on, and you know, four from the the right. And traditionally, it's within. You know, it's either eight, nine, or six, you know, and so they never really vary it. So it really allows somebody that's prepared to put a little bit of time and effort into it to really look at what they can do in order to to best perform on that particular hole or that particular shot. So um, 
you know, that's where just having that information allows you to be just that little bit more prepared. So coming back to your question, it's, it's easy to look at a long range forecast and say, okay, where's the wind going to blow from? At what strength is it going to blow from? What my tee times are? How's that going to affect, you know, how far the ball's going to fly if it's an early morning tee time on Thursday and then we're playing, you know, eight o'clock on a Thursday and we're teeing off at 12.30 on a Friday and the temperature change. So obviously the ball's going to go a different distance, how it's going to affect where the ball lands on the fairway and how much it's going to run or not run. Um, so that allows you to formalize a plan or a strategy for how you're going to play each of those holes, depending on where the wind's going to blow, the time of the day, the temperature, you know, all those things have an, have an effect because you never want to be in that situation where I spoke to you about before about that tour player that is making a decision or a choice based on emotion at the moment in time. That never is a good, that's never a good one. We've both had, we've all had those things where if we had that moment back, it was like, I really shouldn't have said that to her or I really shouldn't have, taken, I shouldn't have done it at that moment. Um, hindsight's a great thing. And that's what keeping data allows you to do is your data is your hindsight. It's your history. It's your thumbprint. So therefore it allows you to make a decision on a Monday in a practice round with your friends or your caddy. That is, if the wind blows in this direction at that speed, which it's supposed to on Thursday, is it a three wood or is it a driver or are we laying up? Or if we do, okay, how's that going to affect that second shot where we're sort of stuck behind that tree? You know, we do we really want to hit a, a draw shot into that pin because traditionally Thursday is a front right pin and we don't really want to draw it into that. So you can get as detailed as you want. Um, and, uh, you know, part of my job was to to have all the detail worked out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and have those scenarios worked out already with the player in order to say, OK, well, when you get there, nothing's going to be a surprise for you. Yeah. And, and you guys know, yeah, Jason, okay. like. Yeah, we used to play a lot of our practice rounds alone for the simple reason that we wanted to make sure that we we did what we're supposed to do. We weren't out there having a twenty dollar Nassau or or whatever with your buddies. I'm not saying that's wrong. There's there's a lot of guys that like to play. Uh, we just like to prepare. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that that brings me perfectly onto the next question because. Obviously, what you've just mentioned there, there's the, the, the guys and girls listening to this are going, well, yeah, I'm not going to be doing much of what you've just said there, Cole. But what could they be doing? Let's say they've got a competition on the Saturday or just a big game of golf that they want to play well in or just a normal game. How can they prep? What's a couple of things that they can do that they're probably not thinking of right now? Well, I think I think the, 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 the biggest thing I played yesterday and uh, the guy I played with, we got to, I'm just trying to think of the hole, we got to, we got to 15. And he stands up on 15. As he's pulling the club from the bag, hmm. he walks to the tee and he goes, this is my nemesis hole. I always <laughs> hit it left here. And, and I, I said to him, I said, you want to go and put that club back in your bag and then come out with a clear thought on how you <laughs> make this your best possible hole? And he goes, yeah, I didn't even realize I said that myself. So I think for, for the listener out there that just wants to start playing better golf, I'd say learn from what the best in the world do. The Jason Days, the Jordan Spieth, the Dustin Johnsons, John Rams, these guys have amazing caddies. They have amazing fitness people. They have amazing you know, mental you know, people, uh, nutritionists, diets, you know, massage people. They have everything. I'm not saying you need that team, but if you just 
got to the golf course, you did some golf specific stretches, you warmed up a little bit more effectively, you got the muscles activated that need to be activated in order to play well. You dedicated some time to actually maybe hitting a few golf balls before you went out and played. <laughs> that in itself would make it more successful. If you went to the putting green and actually worked on lag putting before you went out. The putting green isn't, isn't the putting <laughs> green only allowed to be used afterwards when you've put it badly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Let me work on a mistake that I just made again. But, you know, just, just saying, okay, I'm going to allow a certain amount of time to go and chip a few balls, hit a few putts, do a little bit of stretching and warm up before I get there. You know, that in itself will help you play better golf. And then it's a matter of saying, okay, why is the 15th always my worst hole? Is it where positionally I tee the ball? Why am I always teeing it on the right side on 15 with all the water down the left? Well, that doesn't make sense. How about we tee it on the left side of that hole? Now we're aiming away from the water. Visually, you don't see it. So that might in itself, just teeing the ball on the correct side of the tee box might actually make you you play that hole better. So they're all those little 1% things that all are up to the greater good of performance improvement. But it's they're always looking for the 100 percenter. It's like, <laughs> I want to see the fire without collecting the firewood. Yeah. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. So I think for the average, the average you know, person out there that wants to see improvement, it's just invest a little bit of time and a little bit of effort into trying to make as many 1% improvements that you can, and you'll see a greater improvement in performance. But especially, too, you'll see long-lasting improvement. It won't, be, it won't be up and down, up and down, you know. Yeah. If you if you're watching the um, if you're watching the screencast of this of this podcast which we have on the website, uh, you'll be seeing that me and Andy are just continually taking notes throughout the whole <laughs> the conversation. We are, and, and I know Andy's going to. We are. <laughs> this, this, That's this, good. This, That's good. I've done two pages. I've done two this, pages. This is you. Colin. We lied. This isn't for our, our listeners. This is for me and Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> I could honestly, I could talk to you guys all day. This is, this is no, it's, it's great. I love it. I love it, it. There's so much stuff. I, I am going to. I have got one more question I want to ask Andy before we, I know you're going to go into the quick fire ones. I need to. I need to ask about Chambers Bay with Jason um, when he hits the deck, obviously on the 18th hole. What I mean, what were you, what were your thoughts on that? I mean, just to, just explain for the, the the listeners and the viewers what that was. Yeah, well, maybe one day. I think I think if he had of one that week um it would have been a movie you know yeah. they would have made a movie about that um literally we were playing our 18th hole our last hole of the day which was the ninth par three down the hill um and he'd been playing well uh hadn't mentioned anything uh, about feeling dizzy or giddy or sick or you know lethargic or tired or anything and um we, you know he hit the the shot just bounced over the back of the green went into the bunker I'm like, great, good position. You know, it's an easy up and down from there. It's back uphill. You know, we 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 played bunker shots from there, obviously. So I'm just talking to him. We're walking down the fairway, and then he just hits the deck like a, a sack of spuds. Like he is down. Like it wasn't a wasn't like a slow down. You go. It was like pancake. Like he just went down, and I was like, I looked at him. I'm like, shit, are you okay? And nothing. Nothing. It was crickets. And I, th I thought straight away, I thought he's had a heart attack. Oh. And, um, and I, I, I just looked at him and I, I grabbed him and I'm like, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? And, and he just said, everything's spinning. And uh, he'd had one episode at that point. Um, 
he'd had one episode where he had been dizzy at Firestone at a WGC event. Um, and it lasted like a couple of holes and that was it. And that was a few years earlier. And I'm like, wow, he's got to be having vertigo or something. And uh, anyway, long story short, it works out that it was vertigo. Um, and literally, the medics came. You know, Jordan was incredibly good um, in getting the galleries back and more importantly, the media back. You know, the media, like they were shoving cameras in his face. Um, it's incredible. And uh, so Jordan was phenomenal. Michael was phenomenal. And uh, anyway, he gets up and literally goes to the back of the green and um, and he's he's standing there and he's about to hit this bunker shot. And I'm like, oh, dude, I said, there's a stone in there. And he goes, what? And I said, there's a stone behind your ball. You're allowed to take him out. And, you know, the rule that week was, you know, loose and pedal these stones you could take out. And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. He says, I, I don't want to move my ball because he was shaking. And I'm like, OK. And he goes, and there's two balls there. And I'm like, just hit the <laughs> middle one. <laughs> so I said, I said, if we get this, I said, if we get this on the green and manage the two part, I said, we're in a perfect situation where we can still win this event. And, um, and this is, you know, and this was to make the cut, I think. And, uh, but we were well inside the number, but, uh, he, anyway, he jumps in there, hits the shot out onto the green and, uh, misses the part in two parts. And, you know, uh, within an hour he was in on a plane, uh, on a helicopter going to the hospital. So, it was uh, it was a really scary time, um, but again, from that, what it taught me as a coach, you know, was obviously we found out what the root cause of that problem was. Um, the vertigo, we we went down a path of trying to treat the vertigo. The vertigo wasn't the issue. The vertigo was a result of a middle ear infection um, that was uh, attached to his vestibular nerve within his ear that was affecting you know, his equilibrium and his dizziness. Mm -hmm. So out of that, we were able to apply it to a, a, a protocol, both of medication and also um, you know, from a health perspective to be able to deal and for allow, to allow him to adapt to that. You know, we had one more episode at the Open Championship uh, at mm -hmm. St. Andrews. Um, obviously, it's aggravated with stress and travel and dehydration and, and everything else. Um, so obviously, jumping on a plane and flying to the UK, as you guys know, it's a long way. Um, and, it, it, and it can affect it, but uh, nothing since. Um, so we've been very, very fortunate, but de definitely one of the scariest times of my life. <laughs> Unreal. Unreal. And he didn't, he nearly and he nearly won at St. Andrews as well, didn't he? I mean, he was obviously yeah. right in amongst it there. So, yep. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, right. Let's get to the, right, the quick fire then. We're going to wrap it up. We're conscious of your time as well, Carl. So, um, <laughs> nope. right. Okay. Uh, best round you've experienced on the PGA Tour? Oh boy, um, these are quick fire, right? So I've yeah. got to have best uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, round. Oh boy, um, final round Chambers Bay. Uh, final round at uh, Whistling Straits uh, to win his uh, PGA Championship. Definitely, that was a phenomenal round. Okay. What was the score? What was the score again? Sorry on that. Oh gosh, now you're testing me. Um, can't remember, but it was it. The reason it was probably, and I was going to see, think straight away to say he's 61, but I didn't say that because sometimes the score, you can shoot 61 and it'd be a nothing round where everything just goes in and you, you hold 30, 40 footers. Obviously, you've got to do that to shoot 61. But the reason I say that round, it was because 
you're trying to win your first major championship. You're playing against the number one player in the world on a difficult driving golf course where at any moment you can hit it into, you know, off the planet and, and lose a ball. But it was also playing with the demons of being there in 2010 um, against Martin Keimer and not getting it done. So I, that's why I put it there was there was there was a lot of baggage at that course. There was obviously the the moment to try and win a PGA championship, but it was definitely, um, you know, playing against the best player in the world and trying to put him away. So there's my rapid fire. I'll do better. Than, <laughs> and I'll definitely and do you didn't. And he didn't. No, no. And he didn't duff a wedge either. He didn't duff a wedge on that last hole. Well, he did. He, he, duffed, <laughs> he duffed the wedge. Um, you remember nine? That short. It's a. It, it's a, just a drive and a wedge. Well, he duffed it in 2010 and hit it over the back of the green. Remember that? He thinned it. Yeah. And then he was yeah. in that. Actually, I've got a picture of it. Here we go. Um, not sure if it'll show up, but there. Can you see that one? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So there he is over the back of the green on number 10. He loves it when he comes here and he's like, why do you have that photo? <laughs> and, um, but he thinned it over the back of the green. And I remember standing in the, the fairway, we, were, we could have been in the identical divot we were in 2010. Well, this time he lays the sod over it. And mm-hmm. he, that was the, you know, he lays the sod over it, comes up short. He looks at me and he goes, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. What, what happened? And I said, you laid the sod over it, dude. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, but why? And I said, well, last time you were here, you thinned it over the back. So there's probably <laughs> in the back of your head that you, you didn't want to do that. So you sat back on it and just, and just chunked it. I said, don't worry about it. Let's get up and down going and win this thing. And um, I think being able to settle him down enough to be able to say, suddenly your technique didn't change. Yeah, you know, yeah. this didn't happen. Uh, and be able to get back on track and, and then obviously go and finish off the round. But, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I remember that shot. <laughs> <laughs> Good lesson there for everybody as well. Sometimes to try and correct every bad shot. It's just, like, it's just a bad shot. Let's just go and play the next one. <laughs> You're allowed to hit bad shots on the golf course. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, That's the thing is that, you know, and I don't mean to... to no, no, you're good. Either, you're good. No, no. It, it's, it's the thing is, too, is that, and I try to explain this to people, is that you're going to hit more bad ones than good ones but it's the acceptance of that that you need to work on in order to get improvement it's like these these tour players like you're gonna lose more than you win that's just factual you play 25 events a year if you won once you'd be thrilled so you suck you've lost 24 of them yeah but being able to put in, it in perspective. So whether it's at the highest of highs, saying out of 25 tour events, you're going to only win one. So you're going to lose 24, but you seem to deal with that pretty well. So if you go out on the golf course and you have 100 shots, you might only hit 10 really good ones. You know, So you can hit 90 bad ones, but it's how you deal with those 90 that's going to be the difference, to your point, Andy. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Okay, next question. Was that the first question? Was that the first quick fire? <laughs> I was going to say, name this non-rapid fire? Oh, that was good. I thought we'd at least got through two or three there, but we're still on the first one. Okay. No, I'll, I'll do better. No, that's good. That's good. Best advice you've ever had? You only make one good first impression. Hmm. I like it. I like it. Um, who's, uh, who's been your mentor or biggest influence? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it was Andrew Argus. Um, nobody knows who he is. Um, 
but he's definitely been um, one of the most influential people in my life as an instructor. Okay, perfect. And this might not be a long, this might not be a rapid fire one. What's the funniest thing you've seen on tour? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's quite a few to be fair. There, there is, there's a lot of them. Uh, oh boy. Funniest. I'll tell you this one as a quick, a quick story. We're at St. Andrews 2010 and we're playing with Zach Johnson. So after about five or six holes, I just can't help myself. And, and I said, I got to say something to Zach. And Jace goes, what? And I said, dude, have you not seen? He's got two different lens colors in his glasses. I said, one's a dark one and one's a yellow one. And I said, it's nagging me. Like maybe, maybe because it was a little overcast. And I said, you know, maybe he's like, like uber smart and he's worked out that, you know, if one's dark and one's light, you know, maybe it affects how he sees things or whatever. So he goes, you can't ask him that in the middle of the round. And I said, yeah, I can. So I walk up and I say, Hey Zach. And he goes, yeah. And I said, uh, so you mind if I ask you a question? And obviously I got a pretty good relationship with him. So he goes, no, sure, Cole, you can ask me anything. And I said, why do you have a dark lens and a light colored lens in your, in your sunnies? And he goes, he snatches them off his head and he looks at me and he goes, oh my God. <laughs> I, was, I was practicing. He said, I didn't know whether to go the light one or the dark one. And I must have put the wrong one back in my in my oh, glass. God. We're six holes into this thing, and, uh, oh. and he says, "Oh, I think I'm going to have to change him." And I said, "Can you? That's equipment." And, uh, <laughs> obviously, obviously, he changed his lens out and uh, went for the light colored ones. But yeah, uh, that was a funny story in itself. But gosh, there's so many of them. Um, but that's a whole other know. podcast. We'll just do a funny story podcast you one should, day. We should. Oh, do. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Make sure you get Squirrel on that one at. Uh, Tenth uh, hole at Riviera. You've all heard that one, obviously. I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think go you. You got to. You got to do it. You got to do the do telephone. It. Can you do it? I think you said last time, maybe, but you'll have to remind me. The listeners, I'm sure, like it. The listeners want to hear it now. So, the uh, it was um, Jeff Ogilvy had a caddy, um, great caddy, English caddy, by the name of Squirrel, and uh, they get to they get to Riviera, and if you all know the whole Riviera, it's a short, drivable par four, all about risk and reward. Um, but it claims its victims every year. So Ogilvy's there, and they're in the practice round, and they say, "Should we lay up or go for it in you know in one and hit the driver?" So obviously they lay up and they wedge it on <clears throat> in the practice round, and and that's good. And then they hit the driver in the next practice round. They get it up in the bunker and they get it up and down, and that's all good too. So it gets to the tournament and Ogilvy stands up and says, what is it? And he said, well, we've practiced it both ways. And Ogilvy grabs for the driver and he slashes it up in the bunker. It's a back right pin and he hits the bunker shot. And we all know that bunker shot. It's always a little bit, the ball's a little bit higher, comes out, lands on the green, trickles across the green into the other bunker. Ogilvy's fuming by this time, you know, goes over, hits the bunker shot up, goes across the green, down into the bunker again gets it up onto the green, two putts. And he's standing over on the side of the green and he's fuming. And at that moment, the phone rings in Jeff's bag and Squirrel walks over to the bag and he unzips it nice and slowly, takes the phone out and he goes, hello. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then Jeff is like staring at him with daggers and he says, who was that? And he goes, it was my mum. She said, she said, you should have laid up. 
You could do a podcast, you know, you get started on stories about fluff and those guys and, uh, you know, they've got a, a, a whole suitcase full of stories and jokes about the PGA Tour. I think we need to do that. <laughs> yep. Brilliant. Yep. Oh, brilliant. brilliant. Okay, yeah. right. Final question then, uh, yep. Cole. So, if you, um, yeah, we asked people to build the perfect golfer in terms of the best that they've witnessed or seen or played with. So, like the driving, irons, short game, and putting. Okay, putting, Jason Day. Um, short game. <clears throat> short game, I'd still put Jason in there. Uh, iron play would be Tiger Woods, and driver of the golf ball would probably be. Uh, I'm going to go with Roy McIlroy. I was thinking about DJ there. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. close, aren't they? Two yeah. tough ones to pick between, but yeah, it's it. Rory's a safe bet on that, isn't he? It's hard to it's hard oh, to look past him, isn't it? Really, with that. Yeah, did hard. you see his uh, first swings after seven yeah, weeks? It looked, I did. Yeah, looked like he took seven minutes off. Yeah, it's like unbelievable. Every Instagram account in the world, I think, posted that, I think. I <laughs> yeah, I it's incredible. Incredible to think you can have seven weeks off and swing it like that. Yeah. Colin, well, look, that's uh, we really appreciate your time today. It's been great to chat. I mean, it's you know we've been taking notes, and uh, these podcasts are obviously for our listeners, but they're also for us because we get to speak to mm. some great people who are really experienced, who, who've done a lot and achieved a lot. So, you know, thank you so much for sharing. And I think for... For for the coaches or even for the for the listeners to this, I think it's just acknowledging you, Colin, as well. The the there's no it's no surprise why you you've had a successful career and continue to do that because of the level of detail and 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 planning that you do for your players and the effort that you put in there. So it's it's really from our side of things, it's great to hear that, and it's certainly inspiring to us to 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 wanna to make us do a, a great job in what we do and uh, and continue to push on. So you know, congratulations on what you've achieved, and uh, you can obviously. It's 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 understandable why you've done what you've done. So congratulations. Well, thank you very much for that, Andy. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm passionate about what I do as an instructor, as you guys are. Um, and honestly, I can't thank you guys enough too for what you're doing for the public in in supplying the content that you supply in a a very um, shall I say technical, but not too technical that the average person can really go on there take what you're you're explaining to them and and put it into their games and see some really really good improvement i just don't see i see so much of instruction nowadays going down the technical path and i think that gets lost in the art of coaching and it's the art of coaching that allows players to get long lasting improvements so you do you guys do that better than anybody and uh, you're obviously successful at what you do, but more importantly, you're passionate about what you do and you want to see good improvement and real improvement in, in uh, golfers all around the world. So thank you very much for what you do. No, perfect. Appreciate, appreciate that, Cole. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's the common, that's the commonality that the three of us have got for sure. We just love the game, don't we? We just love helping people. So yeah. it's, it's just, yeah, it's hopefully it's good for people to listen to. And I think Andy, we're probably going to be phoning our clients and saying, oh, I've been thinking a little bit about this now <laughs> when we exactly. get off this call. Exactly. But, but, for, but for you now, is, is there anything that you, you know, we always want to give someone a, an opportunity to promote and just, just maybe say where you are in the world for lessons or, or how they can best get in touch with you maybe? Yeah, I, I work uh, I work out of Hilton Head in South Carolina, a beautiful spot in the U.S. to to hang your hat for sure. Uh, if you enjoy boating, fishing, tennis, and golf, this is the uh, the hot spot of the United States of, of America. So 
Uh, I enjoy doing all of those four. Um, but uh, I teach at uh, a couple of different clubs here uh, in Hilton Head. But certainly um, anybody that wants to get a hold of me, um, you know, uh, can get a hold of me uh, either through my uh, Twitter account um, or uh, just contact their pro and they'll be able to uh, get get uh, in contact with me. But um, I don't have a – I'm not big on Instagram and I'm, uh, I don't have a uh, – a website or anything like that. I sort of uh, fly below the radar to uh, to a certain degree, um, but uh, I'm not I'm not at the level where you guys are. Put it that way. <laughs> I tell you, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this golf tours thing that you're doing. I think there'll be a few people interested in that for sure, including ourselves, Andy. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's funny. It's it's. I've been asked to do it for so long, and uh, I just haven't I haven't had the time to do it. And, uh, you know, I've got so many contacts all around the world that it would be fairly easy to put together something like that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to go and play golf on great golf courses all around the world, drink, you know, some good wine or good beers or, you know, obviously of the local varietal and play, you know, in a, an environment where everyone is passionate about golf. You know, it's mm. not just the, it's not just the stories, it's the camaraderie, it's the, it's the whole part of traveling in a group and and being passionate about what did you shoot today what was your best score what was your what was your best shot of the day all those sorts of things make it fun and uh and i enjoy golf in itself and i enjoy playing golf so it's a it's a great combination love it love it watch that watch this space on that then Cole, thank you so much for your time again brilliant work cheers Cole. thank you very much thanks guys cheers thank you so there you have it, guys. Hope you enjoyed the podcast there. What a great guy Colin is and what a world-class coach. You can see why he's been successful in what he does, the level of experience and the attention to detail to really get the best out of his student as well. And we love that because we're all about helping you guys get as, as good as you can with your golf as well. So look, also, if you want to go a little deeper in your coaching, we've got what we feel is the best thing online. We've got meandmygolf.com, which is the platform that we've created just for you. For somebody who really wants to go deeper in learning and improving their game, but go more detailed in their approach to practicing as well. We've got numerous coaching plans on there to help you. We've got a private Facebook community where people are in all the time helping each other out. We've got so many different types of content, on course, short game, chipping, putting, loads on there that we know you're going to be thrilled to see and there's massive benefit to your game as well. So make sure you head over to meandmygolf.com and give it a free trial. It's great. We know you're going to love it. And if you don't, you can cancel at any time, but we'd love to have you over there and help you with your game. So thanks again for tuning in and we will see you next time on the Me and My Golf podcast.